Hi, this is Brian Frederick, principal with AWH, and you are listening to Mid-Market Growth, a podcast about growing mid-market companies. I've got Guy Michael from Sync Creative with me on today's episode. Guy, thanks for joining me. I'm happy to be here. Guy and I have actually known each other for quite some time, probably longer than each of us would, would want to remember and think about. And we have pontificated, you know, many times over coffee and adult beverages about, you know, business development things. Guy, you know, Sync Creative is a creative agency and Guy, you can do a better job of describing what Sync is. But we've, we've always had in common since we've known each other leading professional services firms. So when you live that experience, it's easy to sort of get together and, and you know, pontificate about the good, the bad and the ugly of that. So good to jump on with you guy and and talk about business development from a mid-market you know company growth perspective and to get your sort of take on what sort of hold, holds some mid-market companies back from growing and achieving what they want to and and we're going to focus most of the conversation on on the business development aspect of that so thanks for jumping on and and if you're okay we'll we'll dig into it and why don't you start with a, a little blurb about Sync and sort of what you guys do and who you do it for, and then that'll give people a little bit of a, a backstory to where the conversation is going to be focused and maybe some of your the, how your perspectives are grounded. Okay, thanks, Ryan. Sync started 25 years ago, believe it or not, as a design firm, and we were a horrible design firm. And by that, I mean we kept backing up and asking questions. Why? digging into strategy. We, we weren't really good at just designing deliverables. And, and so we call ourselves a creative agency now, and, and that's kind of really the intersection of business strategy and creative. And, and what we try to accomplish for our clients is to create engagements with their customers, their audiences, their prospects, and set them up to have those those true moments of, of interaction and engagement where they exchange value, they hopefully gain customers, uh, and grow their businesses. And over the years, we've been, you know, we've done that for Fortune 500 companies and we've done that for startups. We seem to have found a home kind of in the, the middle market area. I think we function really well when somebody doesn't have a fully articulated, full-blown marketing department and they feel like they need a little a little bit of a different approach, some creative, fresh thinking, and, and maybe the firepower to put something out in the market that looks a little more sophisticated and, and, and uh, different from what they normally do. So that's a great segue, Guy, because I think the consumerism of everything is affecting traditional B2B marketing and selling in a way that many mid-market B2B companies were unprepared for and maybe still don't completely understand and are sort of still inadequate at sort of understanding you know, modern consumerism and adjusting to it. How do you sort of think about a B2B mid-market company's, you know, adaptation to the new consumerism and how consumers, even in B2B environments, are expecting an experience that sort of reflects their Amazon experience, right? And and their Uber experience, et cetera. See, I think I think you've you've kind of got to the heart of the matter right at the end of the of the question there. Um, there's a dichotomy at work here these mid-market B2B companies have built great businesses around product design, service offerings, you know, whatever it is they do or sell for someone else. And, and they've done that by focusing on the product and the service and explaining and walking people through those journeys. At the same time, they've been trained as we all have by the Amazons of the world and Google and, and, and kind of the new research first before I engage way of buying things. So, so that everybody at these companies goes home at night and behaves just like the average consumer. And then they go to work and they're running their business based on that sales network on that, um, that walk, let me walk you through the product or the service specification by specification, feature by feature. And, they don't really realize there's a gap there that they're, that they're selling differently than they're buying when they go home. And it's become habit for us at this point because the internet and the way we purchase is, is so vastly different than it was oftentimes when these companies were started, then there's a little bit of a lag or a gap for those companies to, 
to step up and, and make that change themselves. And, and a lot of what we do at SYNC is challenge those, you know, presuppositions and defend the role of the customer because they're just doing what customers do. The business has to adapt to, to, to fit that model. There seems to be a little bit of denial on the part of B2B company leaders that the buyer journey either hasn't changed that much or hasn't evolved. And that denial, I think, is is less about whether the buyer journey has evolved because, you know, I think everybody would agree that it clearly has. It's their sort of acknowledgement and reaction to the fact that the buyer journey has changed, right? That is really, that holds them back from now engaging with customers and meeting customers where they are versus where the company sort of, you know, historically has met customers. I'm going to butcher this quote, but I've, I've seen it attributed to Marines, but I guess, you know, when, when things get hairy, when it really gets down to the nitty gritty, you fall back on your training and your habits, right? And the training and habits and fundamentals for these companies is that feature benefit product service based sale. That's where they're comfortable. That's how they built, you know, a great company and for the power to not be in the sales rep and in the product anymore and to be in the hand of the customer from initial inkling that, you know, they might want a solution of some sort to awareness that that company and their product or solution exists through research, all that happens without the company even being engaged anymore. And that's a frightening thing because they've built thousands and thousands of reps under their belts to become really good at leading people down through that sales process that, that they're leading and now they're not in control anymore. And it's really, it really kind of comes down to that. What have you done to ensure that the right exchange of information is happening when you're not even there to be a part of it necessarily, you know, and that's, that's difficult because in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, these guys can, can walk me through everything that I might need to make an informed decision, but for it to be happening based on content in a drip campaign or landing pages on a website, or, you know, with a social post being what pulls somebody in, that's foreign territory for these guys in the way they built their business. And I keep saying guys, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be so gender specific about that. Um, forgive me there. That's just a generic reference. Yeah, but it is the, the loss of control, right? Creates some of these challenges for some of these B2B company leaders, right? Where they're, they've typically been in control of the buyer journey and process to a great degree, right? Because in some cases, especially if you're in a very specialized niche industry and you sold through a network of distribution that you also control by and large, right? In, in that, you know, companies can't necessarily tell distributors and dealers exactly how to run their businesses, but they can put some guardrails around them and they can give them some guidelines and say, hey, if you, you can, here's how you can use the brand. Here's how you can position products, right? Here's what you can say about products. And that's been a very controlled environment, right? For mid-market companies. And that loss of control is probably, you know, fairly anxiety, you know, fear inducing. Uh, and that's probably pre prevented many of them from even acknowledging there's a different buyer journey now and consumerism has Im impacted their companies. And so they've been slow to react right around that because that last loss of control has, they haven't yet sort of figured out, okay, we've lost control. Now what do we do about it? Well, I think that the buyer journey being different than what they're used to or their sales funnel, right. Is, is where the, is where that gap exists. And when you're talking about empowering the buyer, you know, all the way through that journey to a point where you can hand them off as a marketing qualified lead or, or get back in your comfort zone in a, in a, you know, a support situation, or maybe not, depending upon your business model, you may never actually engage the way you used to with a client, but aligning those things becomes very important. And a lot of times, you know, we see that happen kind of at the CRM level with, with customers, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to go full bore into a CRM and they're taking their existing sales organization and building a process that reflects that old way. And then they're trying to create web content and campaigns that feed that. And those need to be aimed at this new empowered buyer journey that they, and, and they don't line up. And so one of the things that we often do is, is ask like, what's your sales funnel look like? Let's show us how you're walking people through this. 
And then we have to say, okay, let's align a, a buyer's journey based on how we know consumers or customers or prospects or whoever it might be behave and, and research and purchase. And let's align that and then create content to fill those gaps and to facilitate at least that top half of the funnel, if not two thirds of it. And that, that kind of new buyer's journey, it's an uncomfortable process, but when you get it right, you can see that you're still imparting the same value and you're selling the same great product or service offering. You're just empowering people and, and, and helping make it easier for them to want to engage with you and to get there on their own. And then there's, you know, the whole, how do we measure it and what platform are we on and all of that. And that's, uh, you know, to, to some degree, the way Sync looks at it, we're, we're kind of platform agnostic when it comes to that we're really focused on that buyer journey, the content and the engagements, you know, and that can be, that can be website content that can be experiential. That could be, you know, good old fashioned sales materials. You know, we've, we've seen a little bit of a renaissance there where we're working on some brochures and some print stuff, which, you know, in, in a digital world, it's a little bit like a Bigfoot sighting, but our designers have been pretty excited by it. So. Yeah, that makes sense. When you go through these sort of these evolutions, right. There's often a, a, a recycling of older ways of doing things because people want to sort of, you know, recapture, you know, um, some experiences and, and some tangibility that maybe gets lost right through these, through these evolutions. Let's talk a little bit more too about many mid-market companies do sell through some level of partnerships, distribution, et cetera, which makes them at least one degree, if not multiple degrees, away from the actual customer. How can mid-market companies think about engaging their partners and their network and, and, and distribution right into a new buyer journey and a new process? And how, how do they sort of balance those sometimes competing interests and views where they've got to get their partners on board first and then have the customers, you know, sort of get pulled through by distribu you know, by distribution? Yeah, so we're we're working with a couple of companies, uh, you know, on that on that very thing right now. They've grown up, so to speak, with a with a very solid distributor network and some rep groups in between them and the end buyer. Not every relationship, customer relationship, they have, but a lot of them and a lot of their longtime profitable ones, uh, you know, kind of have that distributor model to them. And so you are insulated by at least one step from the customer, but you're trying to build a brand and create some loyalty and and, and some solid feelings and, and positivity around your product and your offering, but you don't have a direct line of communication all the time. So how do you do, you know, modern drip campaigns and, you know, that kind of work when maybe you don't own the primary relationship, you know, so sometimes it's create the content anyway and let your distributors white label it. Sometimes it's share, put it out there and hope they use it. Sometimes it's, Let's try to create some pathways of, hey, it's been sold. This is your distributor. Register warranty and service or take education classes or certifications through the company, right? But still buy through the distributor channel. And, and you have to have a really good understanding of how solid is your distributor relationship? How are they marketing? Or how can you lead them to market in a different way, potentially? And then you have to empower them. You know, it's a lot like the internet. You got to throw it to the distributor instead of throw it out at a URL and, and, and hope that it's working. Measurement can help with some of that, but good old fashioned conversations too with the distributors really help as well. We've got a couple of customers or a couple of clients that have been really good about putting us in meetings with their distributors. And, you know, what you find out when you stop saying, what are this quarter's numbers? What's next year's numbers? Where's my price point? And you start talking about how are we selling? How, how can we succeed together? The conversation can kind of evolve a little bit. And you find out that there's a lot of goals and needs and fears in common. And, and if you can uncover those, then you can work together to fill those gaps and, and uh, build some additional success. Yeah, presumably partners in distribution want the same things that the, the sort of, you know, mothership company wants. But th there can be this sort of rub where distributors feel like they own the customer, they own the customer relationship, they they know the customers better, and they view the sort of mothership company as, you know, removed and disconnected from the customer. They don't really understand the customers, et cetera. 
and in some cases that's not even true right but it's this it's the distributors trying to like hold their ground right and feel like they're adding value in in the process right and as part of transactions and there's companies the sort of mothership company has to do a marketing job and a sales job right with their distributors almost first before they can then have the sort of you know pull through or push through right even to the end customer right and the, and so there's a distributor buyer journey that has to be considered in addition to the end customer buyer journey I'm assuming right absolutely and and that's you know you see the the phys- I was going to say physical manifestation maybe the digital manifestation of that in dealer portals and 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 things like that that are attached to a website you know we've worked with with some manufacturing companies that do sell through a big distributor network and you know starting with a separate web area loyalty programs different sales collateral and material and it's really got to be aimed at helping the distributor grow their book of business by selling more of our stuff and, and I'll go back to those conversations you know the 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 customers that have put us in conversations with them and their and their dealer network or their rep group at the same time Sometimes it's easier, you know, Ryan, you and I have been there as that third party, that outsider, you can bring some perspective and steer a conversation like that and keep the, keep the distributor away from their worst fears, right? Because they're thinking, oh man, if these guys sell direct, they're going to cut me out. They're really a competitor. And then the manufacturer is thinking, well, I'm losing margin to these guys, you know, they're selling at a price point and then, you, you know, so you've got to get them to realize that a rising tide takes care of all those numbers and percentages, right? So how do we create a rising tide together? And sometimes as that third party, you can, you can help get them into more fertile conversational and strategic ground around that. But you really are selling them to your point. And there's a buyer's journey for the dealerships and distributors, and you want to create loyalty with them, right? That you want to be their recommended product, their recommended company. And you're only going to do that, you know, through a long-term coordinated effort, you know, and, and really treating them like a buyer and, and putting them on that journey. And if you can, if you can get in the room with them as a, as a agency like us and find out what they really want and, and connect that to the, to the mothership company, so to speak, then that's, that's where we, you know, really can move the needle in that relationship. Yeah, that all makes sense. And there, I, I think, we've seen and 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 I think you guys have seen as well that often the manufacturer or the mothership company believes they have the persona of their distributors nailed and then distributors often think they have the persona of end customers nailed but when you start to peel back the layers and talk to them about it th- their idea of their customer is actually barely represents the reality of who how their customer's perspectives and who their customer now is different than than what the, the distributor or the mothership company thinks their customer is or or what they want and what they need right and and so th- there's even sort of that you've got a you've got almost got a like sandblast right the 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 corrosion off of the personas and the beliefs of the the distributor and the the mothership company because they're basing their belief and understanding of well I think I understand you as a customer because I'm basing that on what I've learned over the last ten years twenty years sixty years and they've got to almost be willing to blow that up and to say let's assume we don't know anything about our distributors let's assume we don't know anything about the end customers but that's a very hard place to get to. And I think that it's an uncomfortable place to get to. And so, you know, it reminds me of you, you've seen or, or, you know, maybe read, read books or stories or, or seen a movie or something where, or, or even read a newspaper account where two, three, four, five people can see the exact same event and be part of it and describe completely different things and motivations and actions and the things they take away from it are different from one another. And so if that event is the customer, the customer is who the customer is, and they have a point of view as well. But our point of view inside the business, inside the distributorship or the agency is based on, you know, we're looking at it from our laptop out, right? With our spreadsheets and our goals and our experiences in front of us. And all of that is shaping what we think. And I'm relying on what worked last time. I'm trusting 
what's got me to this point. And all of that shades and colors what it is I'm seeing, right? And if it, in the end, it's the end customer or prospect here, that means everybody's point of view is a little different. And I, and I like your, your use of the term sandblasting because I don't have to completely explode or blow up their perception of the customer. I just have to remove that bias. I have to change their point of view a little bit to reveal what's truly underneath. You know, if you can get to those motivations, then then you can you can build a true buyer's journey or or a or a persona or you know, in the end, a campaign, some literature, alter a product. Like I don't know what the solution is, but there's there's a there's a better, truer, more powerful way to to interact with the customer somewhere inside all of that. Well, and, and success can be a, a detractor and a little bit of of an enemy, right? Because if you've built a by most measures a successful mid-market b2b company and let's just say that it's a hundred million dollar company most people would look at that and say yeah that's that's a pretty successful company right been around for 50 years all right successful company you're going to continue to rely on the playbook that has gotten you to that hundred million dollar 50 year old successful company and then it's hard to move off of that playbook Right, because that's what you know, and that's gotten you the results and the outcome in the existence that you wanted as company owner and leader. And it's hard to then to get people to think about, well, you know what, that playbook that's gotten you to this point is probably not going to be the playbook that gets you to be a two hundred million dollar company, or even let's not get that crazy, that's going to get you to be a hundred and twenty million dollar company. And if there's some rewiring that has to take place as part of that, right? To, to have them think about and to buy into that concept that, yeah, our customers changed, our distributors are changing, the environment's changing, right? That we're operating in, the industry's changing. So we can't play, we can't run plays from the same playbook. Absolutely. And, and you know, you're, you're, you're speaking to my, my, my second persona, right? As a, as a high school coach. So your competition is watching film too, right? They're, they're adjusting and changing to the marketplace and, and they're, they're saying, how can we get better? How should we attack this next time? How can we take market share from that? And, and the customer is saying, okay, I'm getting tired of being dripped on with emails. I'm getting tired of, of feeling like I've lost my personal details. You know, so the entire, everybody's trying to get better and trying to play a different game. And your analogy of a playbook is is right. You can't just run the same old plays every time. You might get to the pinnacle of the, mark, the, the mountain once doing that, right? You'd be one and done, you know? But the question becomes, how many rings do you want? If you get a ring at 100 million, where's, where's the one for 125? Do I want that one? And do I have the fortitude and the, and the strategic and creative and development chops to get there in today's modern digital world? And if not, who do I need to surround myself with? What do I need to empower my team with to do that? And I think that's where, you know, AWH and Sync come into play. We're able a lot of times to fill that gap and to, and to say, hey, let's expand the playbook. Let's change the tempo on this drive. Let's, let, let's alter the way we're attacking for a little bit here. And that can help these companies, you know, realize like, oh, hey, I, I, I am equipped for the next level. Our, our, our product, our service, our offering is good enough. And here's how we get there. Let's go. So, Right. Yeah, absolutely. But there's some danger as part of this too, right? Because you also see a lot of companies that do acknowledge they have to start operating from a, a different playbook and running different plays. And then because it's noisy and they want to stand out, and then they get a little too cute or they get a little too cheeky, right? And it, and it's almost like they they almost, instead of just changing plays, it's almost like they try to do a lobotomy and become like a different company with, you know, a diff, with different values and, and a different mission, right? And a, and a different culture. And, and so how do you sort of balance, geez, there's a lot of noise. We need to stand out without sort of crossing that line into, ooh, that's a really weird campaign or, or that's super, or what you're doing is super annoying. Stop doing that. Yeah. So, and, and you're right. It's a, it's a, a danger and it's a little bit of a trap that people fall in because they think, 
wholesale revolution. I'm going to blow it up and be something I've never been before because that worked for that group over there. or I saw that succeed in this arena. But you are who you are, right? You know, not to be trite, but you're never going to be something that you're not at, at your core. So you've got to be yourself. But if you're in that noisy environment, like like a trade show, you know, we work with customers at the the Arnold Sports Sports Festival here in Columbus a lot, at, at least when they're allowed to 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 gather at the convention center. Right. When that when is one th- of the when those things can actually happen, right? Right, exactly. And and uh, you know that's kind of the world's biggest, most tightly packed, loudest shouting match. You know, with 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 a bunch of testosterone poured on top of it. So. The Arnold's a unique place. And one of the things we say automatically is engage the crowd where they are and where they can hear you, you know? And and so you got to be yourself. You got to ask, what is it that the customer really wants, right? This buyer journey that we're back to, like, what do I need to feed them? What do I need to give them to take them the next step forward? And once I realize what it is, what I need to share with them, then I got to find a place where I can interact and give that to them by being myself, but be, be unique by giving it to them at a point where they can hear you or in a way that is different or in, in, in a way that stands out from the crowd. You, you don't have to change who you are. You just have to change how you're engaging and always do it. I, I hate this term authentic. It's become way too popular right now and used in ways that it shouldn't, but you do have to be very true to who you or your product are. Right. It's being used in ways that aren't very authentic, right? Absolutely. It's a buzzword of the day. So Right. So, and, and what you're sort of alluding to there is a little bit of, of experiential, right, engagement, which can be differentiating, but isn't, and, and, and I would agree that more mid-market companies probably could leverage experiential marketing because experiential marketing to this point has mostly been reserved for big brands and big companies, Right. And so I think that leads a lot of people to believe, and it leads mid-market company leaders to believe that experiential marketing is expensive, time-consuming, requires a tremendous amount of planning. There's a lot of moving parts. And so mid-market companies haven't engaged in much experiential marketing to stand out because they don't understand it. And two, it appears that it's uh, hard and complicated. What parts of those are, are accurate and what part of those beliefs are, are just um, sort of based in ignorance and not being well-informed? Well, we're a little bit of a, a victim of what we consume when it comes to these things, right? Because you, you're, you're dead on when you said experiential doesn't have to be big, but we see examples of that all the time. You know, it's, it's football season and we're watching kids try to kick field goals or throw footballs, you know, into giant pop cans. So that they can win a hundred thousand dollars of tuition, you know that that's a huge event-based experiential piece, right? And Dr. Pepper's giving that away, or Domino's is buying all their, you know, small small business gift cards. Those are huge campaigns, but you don't have to invest hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to do that. You know, I was I was talking before about meeting your customers somewhere where you don't have to shout and compete with everybody, you know figure out what you want to tell them and then create an experience that lets you do that. You know, and we've done that with customers, someone that wanted to do some product sampling and we didn't want to go inside the convention center. You know, we, we got 2000 of their products, which I, I won't say what it was, but it was, it's a small item and we put it inside fake parking tickets and we went to the convention parking lot and put them under everybody's windshield wipers. And then we sat out there with an iPhone and, and the first couple of people that thought they got a parking ticket, you know, and, and pulled these things off and ripped them up and we recorded them. And then, you know, it's a small social campaign. They had 2000 pieces of product. They were going to give away that many samples inside on the, on the show floor anyway, stuffing them in bags and stuff. And we just delivered them in a different place. And it didn't get grabbed as you're walking by the booth and thrown in a tote bag and forgotten or smashed. It had its own moment, its own unique interaction with the customer when they got the sample. You know, experiences are often things they're already doing too, right? You're going to trade shows and that kind of stuff. But an experience can be as simple as dropping off, you know, a dozen donuts at the loading dock, you know, for the guys. Like it doesn't have to be airplanes pulling banners and fireworks to to be done. It just has to be a, a true exchange of value at some point. And where, where and how can I do it in a different spot? 
So trying to connect experiential and getting people comfortable with some experiential stuff and maybe getting outside of their comfort zone, right? a lot of mid-market leaders from a business development perspective are rinse and repeat, right? It's, it's irrespective of results, right? They keep doing the same things. And I think they get to a point where they realize they're not going to get different results because they've been going to the same trade shows or they've been doing, you know, sending out the same, you know, uh, content and the same materials and, and they, they might even be see, you know, be seeing a decline in results. So I don't even think it's as much as they now expect different results. Back to the playbook reference, they just don't know how to run different plays, right? And how to get comfortable with running different plays. So how do you, how do you get somebody who's been doing the same things and sort of thinking about it in the same way for a very long period of time, get out of rinse and repeat mode to get into a, okay, we're going to be willing to try something different mode because what we're currently doing is not producing the results that we want. So we've got to at least experiment with something else, right? To see if, if it can give us different results. How do you get somebody in, into a, a comfort zone and a mentality of being okay with a little bit of experimentation? So we're in this conversation a lot now as everybody's crossing their fingers for 2022, hoping that these trade shows come back to being real in-person events, you know, and, and we've got dates and plans and people are asking exactly this question. You know, they're, they're looking in the warehouse, they're getting ready to dust off, you know, the old booth and their, and their assets. And, and they look at that playbook, right. And the, and the inclination is to bring the same sales team and have the same happy hour and sponsor dinner at the same steakhouse and do what they've always done. Right. And, and you, you're going to expect different results somehow or increased results. And, and, you know, specifically to trade shows, we'll tell our customers, hey, um, the least important thing is the trade show booth, you know? And so here's the second thing I've said today that's going to cause my design team to, to want to shoot me. But the booth doesn't matter as much as, you know, it's in third place probably. And, and that's behind pre-show planning and marketing and post-show follow-up. And we tell people the best way to control who's in your booth and the kind of interactions you have isn't wait to see who shows up, but it's try to drive some awareness and do some planning up front and reach maybe some new people who don't normally go by your booth or hit that area of the floor and see if you can get some people there. And then follow up minimum of 90 days, if not longer, and, and drip on them, nurturing, you know, playing a longer game. If you get that strategy right up front and you plan to drip on them and, and, and start driving them toward your product or service after the show, then you'll see that the show probably looks a little different to you as well. And you may look for different ways to engage at the actual event. And I think that that, that can mean engaging outside the show floor in different ways. You know, we've had customers host morning running groups, um, you know, where the, people are going to go out and get a run in before they go to the show or work out or whatever. We've had, customers, uh, you know, set up in the lobby uh, and give away breakfast. We've had people, we've power washed their brand messages on all the sidewalks leading up to the to the trade show in the convention center so that everybody, as everybody's walking in, they're seeing their brand before they're seeing all the other messages. And, and, and all that is to just create a different touch point at the event itself. But I, I really can't stress enough, work on the strategy earlier than you normally do and put together a plan to try to drive awareness. Not, not just the ad in the show in the show guide that says, hey, visit us at booth 193, you know, but, but really acquire a list and talk to your current list and your customers and find out who's going or who's thinking about going and, and try to get them, uh, you know, excited about, about rubbing elbows with you and really collect names. You know, when I first started working trade shows a gazillion years ago, back when we had to ride horses to get there, you'd put the business card in a fishbowl, right? Everybody would just drop off a card if they were interested. And the good sales reps never let a real lead make it to the fishbowl. That was always, you know, the, the, all the crappy business cards landed there and they were given to the young guys and the new guys. Right. Well, today you don't know. You, you don't get the business card necessarily. Remember, they're surfing the web. They're ingesting your stuff elsewhere. They're reading reviews online. And you got to create little engagements and little moments 
once you get them in person, but you got to get them there, right? And that's all about your strategy and your plan. And then you can't let them off the hook after the fact. Don't spend all that money and assume that somebody activated in the four and a half minutes they were in your booth. They became more aware of you and hopefully some good feelings got attributed to your company or your service. You got a little bit sticky, but you got to stay after them because everybody's after them and, and they have a lot of stuff to worry about. How do you do that follow-up and, and, and create that stickiness with, in a way that isn't tone deaf and you're being aware Right? Because you, what we also see a lot of now is you, you sign up for something, you buy a product, you attend somebody's event, right? You attend their booth at a trade show, and now you are just inundated by them, right? Where it is, and they use language that is misleading, you know, that, that sort of gives you the sense that you, you're already a customer, right? Or, or, weird stuff that we've all experienced and seen. How do you do that follow-up in a smart, creative, and engaging way that, that is not annoying and too isn't tone deaf to the fact that, you know, okay, this person has now not engaged with anything that we've done since then. Because if you keep going, right, that you can also then begin to erode your brand if your follow-up is not done smartly. So that starts with, with what goes back to the buyer journey, right? So we're not in awareness anymore. They, they were in your booth. They visited you. So they're aware of who you are and they know what your product and service is. So at, at best, you're at a comparison stage. You're partway down the funnel. So yeah. what I'm going to send you and what I'm going to follow up with needs to be the content that's appropriate for that part of the buyer's journey. Now, if you've learned from them, on the show floor and you can put data in the CRM and, and have an idea of what you want to put in front of them. Great. Uh, but if you just know they've landed in that part of the buyer's journey, hopefully you've got some product comparison or service comparison stuff there. Maybe you've got some Q and a content and some video content. Maybe you do some surveying. you know, this is a good point to start asking people, you know, questions that help them clarify your product, your service, their need, or what next steps might be. So I think you've got to align what you send to them post-show with where where somebody who's interacted with you in person is in your buyer's journey and what kind of content and touches fit there. You know, so and so many people say, Oh, they they visited us at the show. We now have their contact info and you dump them in a drip campaign that starts with the who we are and what we do journey and nurtures them all the way through. And it like they've heard it. They already they already went to see you, figure out where they are. Because then you can exchange value, right? You're giving them something that matters still. And, that, and that's the way to, to not do it. To ex that's a way to not execute poorly. It's a way to, to, to actually further the conversation. And sometimes you, you work your way to a no, but that's okay, right? Because not everybody's going to buy. So, but but I, th I think you really just have to meet them where they are in the journey. And again, it comes down to quantifying how are customers buying? What does that buyer's journey look like? And where are they by the time we're at a person-to-person -person trade show interaction? And what happens next? Which is why we emphasize strategy and follow-up. So, Right. And that makes sense. You mentioned a value exchange. And one of the important tenets of a value exchange is storytelling and good storytelling. And most of us individually are not great storytellers and most companies are not great at storytelling. So why are, and I, and I would say that, that mid-market companies in particular have a challenge with storytelling because running plays from the same playbook, stuck in, in a little bit of rinse and repeat behavior and mentality, how can a leader in a mid-market company and mid-market companies sort of from a, you know, a, a, a messaging and, and vibe perspective, get good at storytelling. And, and why is it hard? You know, why is storytelling fundamentally hard? And then, and then how can mid-market companies overcome that, that threshold of it being hard to actually embrace it and get good at it? So I, I would say first, you got to tell the right story. And you have to you have to understand that telling a story can be intimidating, but it doesn't have to be 
right? So, so my first job out of college, you know, after, after it became painfully obvious, I wasn't going to make any money as a novelist or a poet, you, you know, my creative writing degree lead, 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 led me to marketing and advertising. So what I needed to do was figure out and empower people to tell better stories. I was, I was a writer for a how to build golf clubs magazine, right? It was a, it was a publication from a golf club pieces and parts distributor. And we helped people build custom golf clubs. And so I wrote the technical articles and I had a lot of really smart guys who could tell you all about the deflection and the, and the curve rate and, and flexibility of shafts and how long they should be and how many grams and how, how the cubic volume of a, of a driver head and, these guys were, were total nerds and, and really understood the physics and geometry of the game. And you put a blank word document in front of them with a blinking cursor and they just froze because they didn't think that they, they started worrying about writing sentences, not telling the story. And, and I eventually figured out that like the first few things I tried to create for them were just horrible, just terrible. And I'm questioning myself, like, you know, can I write? Do I even know what's going on? And, then I eventually, and this was long enough ago, this was a cassette recorder I had to use. I, I went in and, and recorded them and didn't even really let them know I was recording them. I said, let's, let's just scrap this and tell me why what you're doing with this particular club or this particular solution is important. Who's it going to help? How does it help them? And they get excited. And then they start speaking with passion and belief. And all I did was record them and go transcribe those things and move around a few commas and, and periods. And I took storytelling out of the writing arena, which we all, because we're trained for years, you know, you, you, you show up at the exam hall and you got a blue book and you start writing and you get it back and it's all full of red ink, you know? So all of us to some degree are afraid of writing, you know, in, in some manner or another, because you think you're getting judged or graded, but almost everybody, if you get them excited about a passion area can tell a pretty good story. My dad, the engineer, may be the exception there. He's he's way too literal to tell a good story. But most people can get excited and spin a yarn. And so the trick is finding that that place and, and helping people find their voice. And that's why we see like we have an engineering firm we work with out of, out of Houston, Texas, and and you know they solve big problems for people and big big construction projects and things. And some of their most effective marketing pieces are just sort of conversation-led interviews, you know, similar to this podcast, but in short form, you know, where that's five questions with Ryan Frederick about how to elevate your, you know, how to, how to use you know, your development and, and, and technology to elevate your product offering. And, and we ask five really good questions and you record them, you've got to talk about it, you edit it down, and, and you've got a pretty succinct and direct piece in the voice of the company and the person. And I, and I think that's really the key. It doesn't have to be hard and you're not writing. Don't think about it as a writing project. And that, re that really helps. Yeah, that, the, that was really good because I think that we do think of storytelling as, okay, we're not great at writing. We, we, we've not, we've not figured out how to distill the story and the message into, you know, content in, in an interesting, meaningful way. But one of the things that you're saying is, well, don't be corralled by the fact that you can only tell tell a story in one format. There's lots of ways to tell a story. And I think that you've got to find the medium and the form that fits your product and service and your personality. You know, those, those golf club guys I was talking about, they were really good at the interview and the five questions thing. But I know them well enough. They're, they're pretty introverted. They might not have done real well if I put a video camera in their face, right? But they also hadn't gone through what we've gone through in the, in the last, you know, 10 years in, in the ubiquity of cameras and video and platforms that make us all, if not willing performers, at least, at least subjects in video or audio or content in some way. So we're all a little more comfortable with it. So I think you got to find the platform that really fits and then match it to the personality of the people involved. There's a tool company we work with that's got a really good product designer. If you ask him to stare straight into a camera and tell about a product, you, you get a guy whose pupils start to, to dilate and he stares into the screen and slows down and tries to be very methodical. Put the tool in his hand on a workbench and say, 
run me through the maintenance program on this tool or show me how you would accomplish X with it. And he then transfers his focus to the task. And he's the most engaging, thoughtful teacher you, you've ever seen. A completely different guy in different medium. And so another guy I know, he's really good at using statistics to point things out and, and to tell or to show the rationale behind things. And so he, he's an infographic or a series of infographics or decision charts waiting to happen. And that's where design has to kind of come, come in and say, okay, I see how you tell the story. I see where your comfort zone is and where you kind of find your power and enthusiasm. What medium fits that, you know? So, and, and it could be infographics, it could be video, it can be audio. Sometimes it's direct mail. You know, it, it's sometimes it's good old fashioned, you know, you know, product sampling or how to events, you know, or experiential. And I, and I think that it really, you got to find what's really true for the product and the service. And then, and then the people that you have at your disposal or the experts that are around it. And, and then I think the medium can reveal itself. It's not always comfortable for clients to use some of these mediums. And sometimes it takes a bit of a, I'll say investment. And I don't necessarily mean dollars. It doesn't have to be high dollar because, you know, iPhones and, and Androids and stuff have wonderful cameras and we're used to content that's a little less produced than a Super Bowl ad. But sometimes what you have to invest in is the time to let these sorts of campaigns and this kind of content make it out. So enough buyers find it at the right point in their journey to engage with it to actually then start to fill your funnel. You know, it's, it's not like turning on a light switch. You know, it takes a little bit of time and sometimes that's the hardest investment. Well, let's talk, let's talk about that maybe as the, the final area to focus in on. You're not going to do anything successfully around mid-market business development strategies and, and tactics, right? Activities that is going to be that meaningful that is flipping a switch or a flash in the pan, right? There, if, you, if you're going to go down the storytelling path, right, recording one video, let's say, and publishing that is probably not going to do you much good. And, and maybe even, even does you a little bit of a disservice because people might see it and they're like, okay, well, you know, that's the only video they've done. Why haven't they done more? Right. And so you can actually sort of create, I think, some questions in customers' minds if you don't commit to a, a, a strategy and sort of dig into it and, and, and have some commitment to it. Right. But I think because of the, fear of the unknown and, and some of the challenge around some of these new areas and ways of thinking that often mid-market companies will stick their toe in the water with a particular approach. And then the, the, the wa it's too uncomfortable, the water is too cold. And so they're like, nope, that's not for us. And of course it doesn't work. And then they point to it and they say, well, we tried video, right? And it, does, and it didn't work for us, right? So how do you get somebody to also buy into this is not a one-time thing. This is right not a, you've got to have a holistic view of this and you've got to sort of buy into a strategy and execute over a period of time. Otherwise, you're just sort of, you're just sort of thrashing, right? And you're not going to probably see much out of it, but it's because you didn't even give it a chance to give you, you know, anything in return and, and an opportunity to deliver different results. Yeah, and, and it's, so we're a little bit back to the to the strategy stage and, and the consulting part where where we have to we have to truly identify what's going to move the needle and, and then then find out are you ready to commit to this? You know, a lot of mid-market companies are the results of product design, sales driven organizations, a lot of type A personalities are the founders and you know, a lot of them are closely held. And and when when time when things take time or when things aren't going quite the way that they're used to those those type a personalities they, they kind of say hey let's let's just roll up our sleeves and we, you know they go grab the tiger by the tail and get after it and they, and they double down on what's worked so far but we've identified this change in the way buyers behave and and, and a new buyer's journey and you really got to get them to buy in right and take that energy and that emphasis and they say, okay, you're ready to double down. Let's create more videos. Let's create additional touches. Let's, let's tell the story better. 
let's and, and keep them involved in the process because if they, if they don't really truly buy in then the fear the nerves the stuff that drives you you know that makes them say well when i've gotten this way in the past i just i, I just buckle down you got to you got to have enough of a plan that you can that you can break that you have to be thoughtful and intentional about it and and sometimes that's antithetical to these leaders you know and and thoughtful change is what's going to evolve your business and that takes time and and we're back to that idea of are we going to blow it up you know is it evolution or revolution i really think these guys have to evolve these mid-market companies are successful for a reason they're great businesses and that's what that's why i like working with them so much they right. the, the product and service is usually solid the thinking the design all of that stuff the problem's been solved the new problem is the the marketplace moved on you you can't do it the same old way you can't just double down on extra effort we have to be we have to think about a different way to interact we have to come up with some new ways to empower this new way of buying, right? We have to create a buyer's journey that truly matches where your market is and then have the conviction and patience to lead your organization through that change. It's not easy, but it's, that's why guys and, and uh, you know, like you and I, Ryan, get a chance to do what we do and, and why our companies, you know, have been successful, I think, in this mid-market space is, is because we understand that and, and we're able to help these companies kind of walk their way along there. It isn't easy, but it's it's often really rewarding. Right. Well said. And that, that's a good note to end on. Guy Michael from Sync Creative. Guy, thanks for joining me. Um, a pleasure. Good to, good to see your face. And and uh, even even though we're going to release this as a podcast, Guy and I have, have t- turned on the video so that we could see each other as part of this. Um, so we weren't just talking into uh, blank screen. So, Guy, good to see your face and uh, look forward to uh, catching up soon. Ryan, it's always a pleasure. And, uh, you, you know, the next coffee or adult beverage is on me. Sounds good. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the Mid-Market Growth Podcast from AWH. This is Ryan Frederick, and we will see you next time.